I'm Zoraida Cordova, and you're listening to the Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. Sure. We're home. I bypassed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. The ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am here with my good friend. He's the human form of the people on Ferrix clanking metal together. It's... I'm not sure what that means. Is he talking about me? Yeah, I'm talking talking about you. Okay. Hey, Brandon, it's Drew. How are you doing on this fine and lovely uh, day? <laughs> I am uh, I'm doing better than the people on Ferrix, if we're being honest. And I'm doing better because we have another great guest. He is the human form of the amazing drums at the end of episode two of Andor. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Marquis. <laughs> wow. I feel like I should, I should clang or something. Like, <laughs> bong. We'll just, yeah, we'll just put the echo of that uh, the bell tower guy, whose name is... Uh, he's a time grappler, which... What? Sounds uh, way cooler than uh, time grappler. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he self named himself because <laughs> yeah. he he clearly takes that role very seriously. So yeah, guys, tonight we're going to be talking uh, all about Andor. We're going to be covering the first four episodes in here, and uh, you know we're going to be full spoilers. So if you have not completed all the episodes. Uh, we are going to go through kind of in episode order, uh, but the conversation will will go where it goes. So from this point forward, spoilers for Andor uh, 1 through 4. And we're going to skip our, our normal format of doing Star Warsing and stuff at the beginning because we have a lot to cover today. And uh, let's just get into episode 1, which is called Casa, uh, which is Cassian Andor's real name. So, uh, Drew, we kind of pick up the the series hmm. in the red light district of uh of marlana one what uh what were your initial thoughts when you saw that as the first scenes uh coming into andor well it definitely sets the tone to uh, to say that this is not going to be like other star wars media you you've seen in the past um i think that this show is going to be more the grown-up show than Book of Boba Fett. I think we kind of ex- we wanted or expected that one to be, but I think this one is going to be the really the one that does it. Um, and that opening sequence of kind of the flashing lights, which it turns out it's him walking down the path, um, I thought was a pretty interesting way to kick it off, just to really telegraph how different this was going to be, uh, and and really just kind of sailed from there. I mean, um, how far up do you want to go? Like, uh, I was kind of surprised that the the instigating factor or event for all of what comes later is an accidental homicide in kind of the back alley. That was really surprising way to kind of really jumpstart what actually happens to this character. Well, it was interesting because it kind of is a reflection of what we get at the beginning of Rogue One. Uh, where that first scene, Cassian willingly kills uh, an ally, and here he accidentally right. kills 
uh, somebody who is is legitimately coming after him. I was kind of wondering, and Mark, I want to ask you this. Do you read it as the first time that Cassian has killed somebody? That's a good question. Um, you know, now that you mention it, that may it may not actually be the first time. Um, I have to say, like I have to echo what Drew said about those that opening scene setting the tone. Um, I I absolutely love how it opens, and mm. it it's very in, invocative of Blade Runner intentionally. Yep. I think. Yep. And um, also, I as just like a little aside before we get to the the murder. Um, uh, <laughs> If we could put the murder on hold for a minute. Yeah, until we get to the murder, I just want to say that the first three three to five minutes of, an, of that first episode is the sexiest that Star Wars has ever looked. And I don't mean in terms of like it being red light district and all and like adult. The sound design, the music, the way it cuts, the cinematography, the way he moves through the rain and into that sort of that, that entrance that has the blue lights and, uh, everything is so sleek and dark and sexy and it just is like this is the show I wanted yes um, <laughs> but yeah when we finally do make it to that that scene in the in the alleyway um, you can kind of see where it's going when he finds out that the one officer is dead and it's an accident uh, mm. even even knowing that this is probably where it's going that scene is so tense where the other officer's groveling for his life and you just can kind of see. And then when, you know, Cassian makes that choice, it's still shocking. I flinched when he, Oh yeah, it was him. brutal. It was, it was rough. brutal. And that's, that's why I think Brandon, you're on to something. I think maybe the way that he made that decision that he really didn't have a choice here because it was either him or, you know, it was one or the other. He was not going to keep his word. Obviously, this guy's not going to work with him to, to make a cover story. Um, I think it is possible that he has committed these kinds of acts in the past. But later, uh, he does admit to Marva that he made a mistake or he messed up. So I don't think it's necessarily this is the first time he's killed, but I think it's the first time that he has done it so recklessly. This is probably not the first time he's actually killed somebody. See, because there's this line he says to to the officer as he's groveling, tell me what to do, like as he's pointing a gun after him. That's a weird question to ask. So I'm like, is he confused about it or is because like like you said, he's he knows that this guy's not going to work with him. The corporate sector or the corporation that's that's there. They're very much like a, a faux empire. You know what you're getting when you get them. And they're never going to help you out. They're always going to to betray you. And so I don't think like Cassian's clearly he may be a little hard headed and stubborn right now, but he's not an idiot. Like he's he's intelligent. He understands the situations that he's in. It's weird to me that he says, tell me what to do. I, I read that as him kind of lording over the the his second the second guy just because because they had been kind of directing him you know you know do this put your hands here you know don't move turn around blah yeah, blah blah he was yeah. he was kind of he's taking back the power in that moment mm. he's like oh yeah tell me what you want me to do now it was more of a challenge I think than it was um, 
he legit doesn't know what to do because I think in his mind he knows exactly how this is going to end because he goes very quickly from frantic and kind of erratic uh, straight to he just points the just pulls the trigger like he, he you can see him make the decision in his brain it's like no nah, this isn't going to work bang like there's no hesitation in that so I, I it read to me like the first time that he'd ever killed somebody but it came so naturally and so easy to him it surprised even himself yeah because that's one of the things that i found really intriguing with his character here in the beginning is he is very in control or he feels like he's very in control i should say of the situation like and i mean just in general he walks down there through the red light district like he he knows exactly what he's doing he walks into the brothel with confidence uh and and feels like he is the one that is pulling the strings there even though he's really not you know and so to have him get rattled like that at the beginning of the show when when you start with this character who seems to have so much confidence is uh and, and to see him kind of break and how quickly that breaks him to the point where he's going to marva and saying that he made a mistake and he's getting overwhelmed uh with you know the consequences of that mistake and the situation he's put himself in uh i think it was a great way to start i actually was like the first first watch on the episode i was like i like it but i don't really know what his motivation is like i i don't know is he already working for the rebels you know so on and so forth and then on rewatch i went oh no they just straight up laid it out in like his first couple lines that he's looking for a girl from canary and then later we find out it's his sister that to me is just like it's so ballsy because you're getting this spy thriller type show where you're getting political intrigue, you're getting uh, slow burn development of these characters. And in the very beginning of the first episode, they're like, this is the thing that drives your main character forward. Now go. I also don't think it's an accident that both Rogue One and this opened with him killing somebody. It's very intentional. I think it's because it wants to, this, this show wants to remind you that that's how you first met him and to underscore that. That's to say, remember, this is who this guy is. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think so. I think there's a lot of parallels across all four of these episodes uh, with Rogue One, and, and they're very intentional in that. You know, you've got the the friends that he's betraying. You've got the family that he's leaving behind uh, multiple times. You know, leaving behind his sister, leaving behind Marva, uh, it's like he always leaves a trail of people behind him wherever he goes. And finally in Rogue One is when we see him stop leaving people behind and starting to be, you know, willing to make that sacrifice. Well, that's, that's a good point because one of the things that I've noticed so far about this series, and it is, it plays directly to what you just said, about his role in Rogue One, and that is that a lot of, in a lot of this so far, Cassian is somewhat passive, and that things are happening to him rather mm-hmm. than him being the one to sort of push the story forward. He ends up kind of being, I might say, at the mercy of other people, but 
his fate and, and what he does at the next step really does depend on somebody else stepping in and really changing his circumstances. And I think that's why it's important because when in Rogue One, he's he's at that he's doing that at, at the beginning when he's he's following orders and he's supposed to assassinate Galen and he makes that choice to not do that. Like that is the like meeting Jen is that point at which he starts to pivot away from doing just doing what others are telling him to do and just following perhaps just the mission and actually thinking for himself. And, and maybe this is what the show is setting up that he's sort of this, he's kind of caught in these currents that sort of take him through life mm. and play to places that he's not totally in control of. And that finally with rogue one, right as he's reached the apex of his life, He's he's finally making those decisions and making those choices and having that agency there mm. at the end. Well, I nice. wonder if the show is going to get into this a little bit more, but Jin runs toward her family when they're in trouble. You know, she she even though she's risking her life to run towards Galen to reconnect with him, where Cassian is at least across these first couple episodes moving away from his family when problems start happening. He leaves Marva, he leaves mm. his sister. And so I wonder if, you know, that's what that is supposed to be setting up. Because I do think, like, the great thing about having this series go along with Rogue One is it's such a clearly defined endpoint for the story that you don't have to leave things open for future storytelling after that, you know? Like, if you think about the sequel trilogy, we know that they're probably going to tell other stories that happen after episode nine. So there's threads there that you, you know, make these little hints of, like, Lando going across the galaxy and stuff like that. There's no chance of that with, with Cassian. And there's no chance of that with the, the other people who were around him on that Rogue One squad. Like, they're all dead, and they're, you know, that's it. They're not... You're coming back as force goes. <laughs> and so it, it, it makes it a really easy to, I don't want to say easy. It makes it very uh, enticing, I guess is the right word, to make these parallels in his development and show that change is, is a long road, you know? Because that was one of the things people complained about with Rogue One was the character development just happened too fast. Well, yeah, it's in a two-hour movie, you know, and you've got a lot of characters and stuff. And this series, and we talked about this offline, is taking the time to do that. You're not getting things quickly. For as much as I said, you know, getting Cassian's motivation right off the bat, other than that, you get things very slowly. And I'm digging yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So let's go to the tribal environment that on Canari that he came from. Canari. Uh because it's a, a small mid-rim system is what they, they call it. And uh, later in, in the series, we get that it was abandoned after an imperial mining disaster, which is kind of like the Empire's go-to of like, oh, something went wrong? Yeah. Mining disaster. <laughs> yeah, it was... Yeah, I can't wait to find out what really happened, you know? Right? Like, and it's like a testing site for, like, I don't know, super laser technology or something. Did either of you ever watch the show The 100? very few yeah. episodes maybe three episodes okay it just visually it kind of reminded me of that where it's these yeah. kids who are abandoned and having to kind of create their own society to fight on their own um 
that was really interesting to me. Yeah, it reminded me of two things. Lord of the Flies was one yeah, of exactly. them. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the kids. Did y'all see Mad Max 3? <laughs> no. I <don't> know. <laughs> yeah. uh, there is but one Mad Max, and it's Fury Road, so... Oh well, yes. That's all I. Yeah. That's the no only argument I can there you. at all. Um, <laughs> no, but if but if you ever do check out Thunderdome, there is a uh, he comes across Max comes across a tribe of orphan children, and it, and it's a little like this. These kids on Canary are a bit more civilized than the kids in Thunderdome, but it, okay. it reminded me of the same. <laughs> well, yeah, like there very clearly is a society to them there's a cultural structure that you can see already uh, because you have that part where casa is coming to join them as they're you know the ship crashes and they're going to check it out and casa you know tries to join in the circle the one boy tries to push him away and the the leader she's like no he can be a part of this um and and that kind of intrigued me because i'm like why is he trying to stop Casa from joining them? Is is there a rivalry here? Is there a tradition? Is it something else? I'm wondering what the the stripe on the chin represents. All of these things <laughs> that really, you know, if you, if you told me you're going to get a story about Cassian Andor and you're going to have some of his background life and then you're going to have the present day stuff, I would not figure that the the past stuff would be equally as intriguing. At, you know, in terms of world building as the present day stuff. Are there, are there any context clues you're relying on to say that Casa is his real name and Cassian is some kind of second given name? I thought, I thought it was kind of like a, a shorthand between him and what I presume was a sister. See, and I've heard other people say that as well, but with the, the episode being named Casa He's always called Casa. Um, he's never called Cassian on Canari. And there is a point uh, where B2 is uh, shouting to him, more or less, like trying to get his attention. And he calls him Casa. You know, kind of like you're, you know, a parent would call, start calling a kid hmm. by their real name. So, okay. I guess you could kind of read it either way using the exact same information, which is interesting because I thought it was because it's the first episode, it's his, or you have to take a minute to explain the very beginnings of his origin. And so it starts with his family and that's what he's known to there. But I, I didn't get the impression that, well, it's, it's, it's difficult because nobody else talks to him. Yeah. And I don't really think he introduces himself very much to people. So it's hard to say, but we also know, we also know that Jorid has a has a stutter from time to time. Right. So that's kind of what I thought it was hinting at was just the the, the stutter of the droid ignites in his memory his you know, his old name, his old family, his old purpose. It's kind of like he's he's tying those two things together, at least in the show, to say like, Hey, we're your family too and then he just kinda has to, he has to up and up and go in order to save them from a worse fate. I think if you look at it like from a literary aspect the woman in the brothel you know when he says like what did she call herself or something like that she says nobody here uses their real name right and she's talking to him right so but we also know that the officers there you know kind of have a fake name hiding behind the corporate sector you know they're really these cowards so i don't necessarily think that Casa is, or I should say, I initially thought that Casa was a nickname, 
and the more I watched it and thought about it and stuff, I think the clues are, are pointing towards that being his uh, given name because you change he changed everything else about himself, you know, when he took on the well, Andor it, name and was... Maybe. We don't really know that, though, because he was kind of abducted into it. Right. He may, he, I'm not saying he went willingly, but I am saying that he changed and adapted his history, and I feel like if you're going to you know modify the records and all of this stuff like it's kind of like a uh you know ben mm, kenobi it, kind of thing like why did yeah. you change your last name like well now we haven't mentioned that i mean marva seems to be the one who she's the one who says fest is that the name of the planet that was yes. the she says fest was your was always our cover story like she, it yeah. sounds like she helped to craft his new identity to keep his real origin secret well, here's an interesting little fact. Uh, in the Rogue One Visual Dictionary, mm-hmm. it, it says that he's from Fest. Yeah. So that's Which pretty, cool. pretty but, interesting. Uh, you know, Morlana One is really interesting, but I love Ferrix. Like, I just, I'm really liking spending time on this, essentially this scrap planet, you know, uh, where cassian lives amongst the scraps because he is the he's scraps like he's just tossed aside you know he's all this potential to be something but he just is not being put in the right situations uh, to be able to do that and is being you know kind of forgotten and lost like a lot of those parts would be in in a scrapyard uh and and i find the culture there you know, is very tribal and reflective of where he come, uh, came from. I don't know. Do you guys, what do you think about Ferrix? Do you, are you getting the same vibes there or am I overthinking this? Well, I, I think that the show, I mean, the Tony Gilroy has said that he wanted this show to focus more on the everyday people in the galaxy. Um, and I think there's no better way to just to uh, illustrate that than to have, you know, the setting take place in a in a very working class community. People, you know, a very tight knit group of just people who just work day to day hard on in very probably low paying jobs, but also have very close knit communities because they depend on one another. They have mm-hmm. to. Um, so I think that's part of the that is part of the uh, the reason for why it's set there. Um, but I but I think that's a really good point about it being a very tribal thing too, because they obviously have ritual and and it is um, uh, somewhat similar to to his origin. So yeah, I, I can see why he would be attracted to to that place or feel more comfortable perhaps staying put in one place for that long. Yeah, yeah, because like I saw a parallel between. <laughs> the Canary girl and bricks, you know, as kind of these female leaders that he trusts in to guide him. When we first see bricks, she has a mask on, you know, uh, she is not exactly what she seems to be, which is kind of also true for, uh, you know, the, the leader of their tribe. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's talk about Tim because, Tim, 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 poor Tim. Oh, man. Like, <laughs> Let's talk about Tim. <laughs> we, we don't talk about Tim. No, uh, he, 
Bricks has this line about he'd do anything for me. Um, and it, it, it's an interesting kind of thing that gets flipped on its head because he does the one thing he thinks he should be doing for her, which is turn in Cassian to protect her. And that's the worst thing that he could have done for her. Uh, I, I just really found that interesting as like, he really, he he's kind of the villain, if you will, of the first episode, but not because he's a, a bad guy, but because he is just, I, I don't know if it's jealous, if he thinks he's protecting her or what it is. I think it's coming from, I don't think it's coming from a bad place. I don't know if I would say it's coming from a good place, though. Uh, so what do you, where do you land on that? Um, he's a straight up idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, All right. But, but I totally understand where you're coming from because he's not like a, he's not a hissable villain. He's not somebody who's, who has really nefarious motivations. He's just this, you know, idiot who's caught up in his feelings and is really being petty and small and insecure yeah. And yeah, and and in a you know, uh, probably it'd be great for us to probably have a a woman's perspective on this because I feel like maybe his his the way he treats her is very problematic in that he feels he has to protect her and she is clearly someone who does who can take care of herself. So the fact that he he treats her that way suggests that has more to do with his insecurities than what she needs or, or would want. Yeah. He, I don't know. To me, he's kind of like, he's like the guy that won't give his girlfriend the passcode to his phone, you know, like, <laughs> and, but he also like takes her phone at night and uses face ID. Like, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> there's so they, like, I don't think he, like you said, I, do, I, I don't think he's necessarily at his core a bad guy. I just think he's petty and little. And if he grew up on Ferrix and he grew up around these scraps and having to scrounge for everything that you get, like in a storytelling aspect, like this doesn't forgive it, obviously, but it makes sense that he would be like that you know because you're literally just picking up whatever you can get is kind of the mentality and you cling to it because anything that you can get could be a value um but it also could be completely worthless and so it's like where do you find that balance within yourself and he clearly doesn't have that uh balance especially when it comes to to bricks um yeah it to me, that is, I really, I like that they gave us this character who is kind of a nobody in the grand scheme of things, but that just was so fascinating, that first episode, uh, you know. Yeah, and his actions set in motion everything that follows. It's yeah. Like this, it's a domino effect. Absolutely. And, and, and But yet, he's not just a plot device. I mean, I think it's... The thing about so many, and this speaks to a lot of things about in the show that that appeal to me and why I like it so much is that 
there's not a whole lot of backstory on these people. Like we don't really know that much about him. It's that the, the story moves very efficiently from character to character. It tells you what you need to know in the moment and so that you can understand where everyone is in relation to one another. And it's, and everything moves to set the plot and move the plot forward, but nothing feels contrived and nothing feels mm. like a plot device, yep. at least in my yep. opinion. I'm with you on that, Mark. I feel like it's very organic. It's fluid, but it makes sense in the way that you don't feel like when you jump from scene to scene that nothing really changed. There's always this sense of of movement as things uh, are continue to move along in the story. Yeah. And every character makes you want to know more about them. Totally. Like, there is not a single character who, who's had significant screen time that I'm like, meh. Like, I want to know more about Tim. I want to know more about Brasso. I want to know more about Karn. Like, I want to know more about all of these characters because they're giving us a little bit and then continuing to move on because that's part of the point of this story is the galaxy keeps moving whether you're ready to move with it or not. And you can either learn to go with it and do something about it, or you can get caught in its, you know, its scraps, in, you know, under its wheel. Because that's where Cassian's at at the beginning. He's just getting caught under whatever drives right over him. He owes people money. He's on the run. He gets caught in this accident uh, and then commits a murder, and he doesn't know what to do about it. And then we transition to Luthen bringing him in to try to actually do something about being the change in the galaxy. And we know he eventually becomes that. So we can see that transformation that's happening. And the story itself reflects that transformation within Cassian. Yeah. Can we go back to Brassa for just one second? Yes, please. So so what what I was saying (laughs) earlier about how efficient and economical this this storytelling is um i love the scene where cassian's coming up to him and he needs brasso to give him an alibi and halfway through the exchange brasso takes over and starts completing the alibi but the way that they lean into each other it's such an intimate moment that either I was thinking either like they have a, like a romantic past or they're just such good friends that they can finish each other's sentences. And the fact that Cassian, this is Brasso is an example of someone who will lie for Cassian. And he, there are a lot of people in Cassian's life who, who will do that. Do you notice how many people yeah. in his life cover Absolutely. for him and care about him that is such a great way to illustrate who Cassian is that you sort of see him reflected in everyone else's interactions like you see him you see Cassian through others how others see him so the fact that these people would do this for him yeah he's a screw up and he's messing and he messes up his life and he messes and complicates everyone else's life but obviously there's something about him that people feel compelled to help him. I literally, one of my notes on here for the first episode is Cassian feels like a darker version of Han because everyone loves him, but is fed up with his BS. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a good, good description. Like, like that. it yet. Yeah, I mean, and, and what was, I don't know if it was the fact that I was watching it super early in the morning or what, but when they were first having that exchange, it took me a second to catch up to, Oh no, Brasso is adding to, 
the story, he's not like stopping Cassian. I, I almost expected him to stop Cassian and be like, no, I'm not lying for you again. You know, make it harder on your main character. But instead, you're showing this support system that he has around him. And, and he's gotten really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> like he's had to do this before. So he's really good at it. Uh, it's it's so. oh yeah this is definitely not the first time they've had to right. concoct a plan to hide where they've really been <laughs> let's move to deputy inspector karn because i really like this guy <laughs> I, I just uh I'm the bureaucrats s- this corporate sector is like a faux empire you know like they are well, they're, they're government for hire exactly they're kind of they're, they're very yeah. mercenary like the they're hey wanna, hey they're mall cops. <laughs> they literally, yes. Like, I mean, I guess so. Well, notice too, like their uniforms are denim. Like they're essentially wearing blue jeans. Like they are literally the blue collar version of the empire. Like they're like the town council in a small town where you're like, do you actually take votes or do you just like walk down the street and ask people what they want to do? Like, you know, it, it re- reminded me of honestly, and it's it's probably because Stellan Skarsgård is, comes in later in the show is, but it reminded me of Chernobyl, the show Chernobyl that was on HBO a couple of years ago. And it really felt like the fake government and the kind of the rule, the way in which the rules were set up in that plan. Have you guys sh- seen that show? I have Am I not, speaking to myself. No, but I've, no Mark, I've heard a lot Brandon. of good things about it. Yeah. You get the sense of like they're all here to just because this is where they're assigned and they're never going to move out of that position. And they're not even really collecting a paycheck. They're just showing it because there's nothing else to do for them. <laughs> Except for Karn. Like he seems committed to the cause or at least. Which one is he? Is he the young guy or the old guy? He's the young guy. Okay, he's no, the one I thought That's... looked like Sam Witwer. Yes. Or, based on our last episode, as I now refer to him in my notes, as Jawline. He's a very handsome man. Oh, Karn. Okay, I, I know this is Cyril. That, I, I, Cyril Karn. Yeah, Cyril Karn, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, them last names always get you. Yeah. <laughs> but he modifies his own uniform. He thinks he's better than than everybody else he doesn't want the sloppy uniform right he wants to be a part of of the empire and it reminded me of the tarkin novel because at the beginning of the tarkin novel you get will of tarkin standing there as his imperial uniform is being tailored to fit him because he wants to make sure that he presents an image of power and uh that his uniform fits better because he is more a reflection of the empire than anyone else. Let's get into episode two. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what happened specifically in episode two versus anything else though. Like, I think this is a function of having released the first three episodes at a time. And yeah. I think this I agree. Was, yeah. was, was this, do you think this was always the plan was to release all three at the same time for, so that it felt like a movie a little longer? Cause no, because originally mm. when it was the uh, August date or whenever it was, they had two episodes. Yeah, dropping. but like these don't work by themselves. They like, really don't. They're better as acts one, two, and three of a play. 
especially the way episode one ends boy does it end abruptly and in a weird place yes that's kind of what i was thinking like when i remember watching i was like oh that why are there credits (laughs) are we done with this one oh okay well what is okay sure it was very a very odd transition from episode to episode i thought yeah i mean maybe upon like a s- subsequent revisiting we'll be able to kind of nail down a better structure of how the what the what the outlines of these particular episodes look like but what what happens in two that makes it distinct well that that's the thing two doesn't feel distinct like, i think you guys are absolutely right about that because it's mostly like the backstory of canari and oh, everything that? that goes on there so it, it's more of a buildup, you know, that you get in, you know, the middle of a story where you start to go, oh, this is why all the, you know, the characters were doing what they were doing, except for more specifically focused on Cassian, because you get more of the stuff with Cassa and you get the the giant, like, mining pit that has, has apparently, you know, destroyed Canari and evaporated all the adults um (laughs) like you get that you you get the the development of the relationship between bricks and tim uh it's all like character stuff which i really digged because that's kind of you know my jam yeah it's definitely good like quality was really really interesting i'm just again this is just probably coming on the back of having it watched it one time a week and a half ago and like in the middle of the work day, uh, it just it, it it's not standing out. The moments don't stand out distinct and say this is part of ep- the second episode. Whereas I feel like if we thought hard enough, we could probably outline most of like Mandalorian season two, and we could kind of nail down what happens episode to episode. These don't right. these so feel so much more linked together as one yeah. story. These three episodes in particular. Right, which is why it's weird to talk about the first four because, like you said, the first three <laughs> feel like just one entity. And then the fourth episode does not feel like – I mean, it's kind no. of a continuation of the first three, but it also feels like fragmented <laughs> because it's like the start of this new arc. Yeah, it, it's a great – it's an interesting storytelling device, and I think it's pretty different from the other shows that we've seen. Like, I was thinking mm-hmm. about like the way Kenobi introduced kind of the story it was telling. The first thing it did, uh, you guys remember, it's actually a prequel summarization where they make mm-hmm. us relive Order 66 for the 87th time. Um, do you remember Mandalorian's very first introductory scene? It was the scene on, in the bar, right? It's him on the ice planet hunting yeah. down the mithril and right. dragging him across the ice. I didn't even remember that <laughs> until I started thinking about these things. Well... I think this show, you know, has the ability to do things that some of the other shows haven't had the ability to do in in multiple facets. You mm-hmm. have the releasing of the first three episodes, which to me is very much, you know, like Kenobi, where if you watch Kenobi all in one sitting, it feels for the most part like a movie that, you know, is just really long. And you kind of get the same thing. The first three episodes of Andor feel like the first movie in like a trilogy, let's say. Right. And then you transition to episode four and it does feel really different, um, but clearly happening in the same environment in the same universe, kind of like to me, you know, like a Mandalorian into book of Boba Fett, 
you know, um, where you have these similar characters, you have these similar situations and everything like that, but the feeling of the storytelling is is different. Um, and, and it's interesting that they have the time to do that. You know, they have the time to do these arcs in, you know, this 12 episode season that they're having this year and they another 12 episode season happening um when season two comes out i think having that time to do that really gives them the time to develop these longer arcs in a way that we honestly haven't had since clone wars you know like clone wars really broke Mm. up you know i'm thinking of of the major ones like mortis and umbara and things like that where if you don't watch them back to back, it's like you you lose something. That's and true. That's if you point. don't watch these first three back to back, I think you lose a good bit of of what's going on because even just like rewatching them, like I I watched all three the day that they came out, and then I watched one each of the next mornings to take notes and stuff. And good grief, it was. It was a very different experience, not necessarily worse. I, I, I don't want to say that, but definitely different to watch them one at a time than to watch them all together. When they're very watching all together, you are, as, as most people have said, extremely captivated by the story. When you watch them one at a time, you're like, okay, I feel like I turned a movie off in the middle. You know that feeling you get when you like stop mm-hmm, a movie? Yeah. That's the, you legit get that feeling if you watch them one at a time. And it's just, yeah. that's really fascinating to me. Did y'all see the, did you read the, any of the interviews that Tony Gilroy gave where he, he explained what their original vision was, where they saw mm. this as being five seasons? No. It's like, yeah, because he wanted, each season to cover a year and he i mean what they wanted it to be set five years prior to rogue one and then each season would be a year oh my goodness leading up to rogue one but then they decided once they got into it that it was just going to be far too expensive and too complex to try to do that in five you know over the course of five it would just be massive so they condensed it down and so what we're seeing in the first three episodes would have no no what we're seeing in wait a minute Hold on, let me think about this. So I know the second season will be will cover four years. The first season covers the first year. Yeah, and then I think in the second season each arc is a year. So every like three or four episodes, yeah. depending. Oh my on. gosh! Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. There obviously it's gonna be so good. There's a lot of ambition so here. It's a very ambitious undertaking. And I kind of wonder because. I've seen a few dissenting opinions on Andor, but what are those? What are those dissenting <laughs> opinions? Explain yeah, we, it to me. We don't we don't do those. We don't talk <laughs> no, about them. We don't, no, we don't do those. No, but you know, with with all the other series that we've gotten, maybe Mandalorian at the beginning was, you know, beloved or beloved by everybody. I think as it goes on more people are critiquing it. Um both fairly and unfairly as star wars fans do but like kenobi you know you had the haters right out the gate book of boba fett you had the haters right out the gate and this is not to say that andor is perfect but it's pretty much everybody is is loving this um 
I think it is what we have been wanting for a long time of finally breaking out of the mold of Star Wars storytelling in and yes. delving into that spy side of things, the the thriller side of things, really taking that idea that Star Wars can fit in any genre and doing something with it instead of going like, well, we're going to tell a Star Wars story, but it's going to look really Western. You know, it's actually Mm -hmm. saying, no, we're going to tell a spy story that happens to have Star Wars characters in it and exists in the Star Wars universe. And I think that that is something people have been wanting for a long time. So I almost wonder if by the time we get to, you know, the end, things may change. But are they going to regret not spending that money to make it five seasons. Mm, well, they can always spend more. You know, I don't think that's going to be a challenge. If if you're covering all the five years before Rogue One, you're not leaving a lot of room to do other well, stuff on TV later. The the way you got you got to think about it, like a lot of the, the the previous shows, Mando, Obi Wan, and whatnot, are kind of you start with the base of Star Wars and then you put these different stamps on top of them. Like you said, the Western, the heist thing, whatever Kenobi was trying to really do. This one kind of flips that around and starts with a spy story and then it happens to be set in the same universe as these other things that are happening, but they don't really matter. You know, it's it's a different style of filmmaking that the people who have been involved in the shows up to this point, just they don't come from this background. And that's really, I think, very important because as good as those things are, you can definitely tell those are Star Wars-ian things, and then they've just kind of applied little bits and pieces of stuff to it. Tony Gilroy doesn't have any kind of like allegiance to Star Wars, not to the degree mm-hmm. that these other creators have had. And so he comes from this left-field perspective. I mean, not as left-field as they could have gone, that's for sure. But he's proven himself in so many of his other projects, and especially what he did on Rogue One to make that ending as satisfying as he did. Like, if the stories are to be believed, and if the internet can be trusted, that last third of the movie was completely his design. Like, from the moment they get to Scarif to the moment the credits roll is basically him reorganizing the story and making it make sense. Because otherwise, it was just a jumble of wackiness going on. That's no good. So just the way in which these things are crafted is so different. And that's kind of the refreshing, you know, air that I think these stories needed by the end of Kenobi. I don't know if the rest of you guys felt like this, but I was kind of getting tired of the same old formula stuff. Like we know where those stories are going, even though we know that Cassian is going to make it out alive. We really don't know what's going to happen in these stories. We barely know what they're after. That's true. And that's kind of, I like that. It's it's that feeling of we don't know what's hap- going to happen around the corner, and and that's something I don't know that we've really felt that way in a long time. Yeah, we know certain things. Obviously, like we know Mon Mothma is eventually going to leave the Senate. We know, you know, Cassian, what happens with him and the rebellion and everything like that. But yeah, we have very little about the before and the in between which is mm-hmm. very different from from a lot of the other stories like we and and we're in this time period where it's almost you know it's it's too late for order 66 to matter um which is honestly extremely refreshing I'm um, fine with that that yeah <laughs> I was terrified that they were going to start another show with order 66 and I was just like let's yeah. like, can we not let's not guys it's fine speaking to something Drew, that you said about Tony Gilroy not being beholden to Star Wars. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. I think a really good indicator of that is a character like, and I'm jumping a little ahead here, but um, Luthen Rail feels very oh, yeah. much like a Tony Gilroy character. Like <laughs> this is a character Tony Gilroy would have put in any of his movies. It just Absolutely. happens to be a Star Wars movie because I tell you, there is something is the character himself is so mysterious and I have so many questions about this character that he seems to be very pivotal in everything that's going on. And there is so much more than meets the eye. Um, I don't think we really have even scratched the surface of who this character is. And that's one of the things that makes this show feel so different is that this, I mean, you know, yes, he's helping form the early Rebel Alliance, but is he? It's like, and really, who is he? And 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 a lot of my my intrigue about him comes from just the fact that Skarsgård is so brilliant. God, he's he so good. Plays him so well, and he he plays him with such a. Uh, I've been trying to kind of grapple with the way to describe it. It's like a um, deadly urgency. There, there's like this, he doesn't mince words. He has no patience for pretense. He wants to cut straight to what's, you know, w- w- what he's after. And there's a ruthlessness about it that makes him a little frightening to me. Like there's mm-hmm. like, I, I'm not going to say he, like he's not Saul Guerrero because Saul Guerrero feels just a little unhinged. Whereas Luthen Rail feels like there's just something more, I don't want to say malevolent because, but he's driven, he's driven by something and it may not be something that is in Cassie's interest. If, if we think about saw being unhinged and use that as an analogy, I would say that Luthen is a door that the hinges are really loose on and they squeak a lot and you're not sure if that door is going to stay on or if it's going to snap. And so you're very gentle with it, but it still holds up well enough to do what it needs to do. Like, I feel like at any moment he could just break that. He could just absolutely Mm -hmm. snap. And we'd be like, yeah, that tracks. Hmm. I see. I don't really see it so much as that. He's, he's an, like he's a loose cannon in that sense. I see it more as a, as if you step out of line just enough to where he can't use you anymore and you're not of any use to him, you could be very expendable in a very unpleasant way. He that's, says that's it about Cassian. He literally says Cassian is yeah. disposable. That right. shook me. Drew, you have thoughts on uh, on Luthen? I thought he's. I think he's a very interesting character. I think he's a great schemer. Um, I think he he has a, a motivation of sorts. I think he has skin in the game, um, and he's not interested in any of the things that would slow him down in accomplishing whatever his real objectives are. And I think that makes for a fascinating character. I think he's a lot like Saw Guerrera. I mean, Saw might lose his grip on reality, but it's only there towards the end of things. I mean, he has a vision, and he is willing to accomplish that vision. And so I I think he's utterly fascinating. I think he belongs more in a movie like Collateral than he does in anything like this, but hey, yeah. I'm for it. I'm a big fan. This is kind of like the... I don't feel like we get this kind of character very often in the Star Wars universe. We don't get somebody who has their own 
motivations separate and apart from the other characters. Like everybody kind of plays in the same space. You know, everybody knows the empire's bad and it's just to what degree are they interested in doing something about it? Or everybody knows the war is coming. It's just a matter of how much the Jedi are interested in stopping the war from taking place here. You know, you can clearly see he's got a, a vendetta that he is looking to execute against Whereas not everybody else does. Uh, Cassian surely doesn't. He's being sucked into this. We don't even know how much his particular motivation is anti-imperial at all. Cassian, that is. Like Cassian's goal, well, so far as we know in the story, is let's. I got to find my sister. But we don't know how much that ties into imperial action. He doesn't have a choice. He's got to get out of there so that the few connections he has left on uh, planet number two... Are, are safe so he's not out of it you know i guess it is a little bit like han solo he's not in it for the rebellion he's not in it for him he expects to be well paid <laughs> yeah i mean exactly and like luthan is he's just so different from other characters like he's like a lot of other characters that we have but only bits and pieces he's a little bit like uh like Saw Gerrera. He's a little bit like Mon Mothma. He reminds me of the client a lot from Mandalorian too. Yeah. Yeah. It might just be like that old guy actor quality to him. You know, <laughs> the late stage white male kind of guy. Eastern European. <laughs> I think the real turning point for me in viewing him as a, as a, as a complicated and fascinating character was that little room in the ship where you he goes and it's like oh he has he has disguises oh yeah and yeah, it's like oh wait a minute because because brandon i'm pretty sure you you avoided the trailers right so you didn't watch trailers for uh, this until our last episode yeah yeah you watched one um, <laughs> <laughs> well that's true yeah but there was that scene where he's greeting mon mothma and he's like on mm-hmm. curasads and he looks like a man of opulence and i and i was thinking well he maybe he's somebody who is a person of prominence who then has a, a a change of heart or wants to then works against the empire. Like a lot of people, you know, there are people on Coruscant that we know switch sides and decide to, to work against the empire because they, you know, they have issues with the empire. But then to see that he's, that this is a character that he's playing, then I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, mm-hmm. so we really don't know so who this right. guy is. That, that, uh artifact that he he gives mothma when they go behind uh the closed doors you know mm-hmm. they go in the back the two-faced divinity the sun goddess and the serpent from the underworld sharing the same mouth that is literally it's him. luthan and mothma <laughs> like yeah it's so cool like they're doing something with everything in this story like yes these these artifacts are cool interesting artifacts but they mean something too. They you know exactly. The, exactly. They have representational value outside of just, Hey, that's the armor from, you know, star killer and force unleashed or the Mandalorian armor that looks like is hanging up there too. Well, it's more than just the, doesn't look cool. It means something. A uh, blunt force object that he offers, you know, for uh parent Mothma's husband at the beginning. Right. And she's like, I'm trying to get him away from, from weapons or whatever. It, when we get to them later, you go, okay, that's like kind of 
a thing in their relationship. He's a blunt force object. He's not pulling any punches in what he wants. And she's trying to move him away from that and, you know, make him think of something bigger and something of more importance. Well, those are all great points about Luthen's shop, but we have not talked about the, the, the piece of currency that he wants to give Cassian that is a kyber crystal. Yeah. Okay. That's, and it's not just that it's, he's giving him a kyber crystal. He wants it back because it means something to him. Yeah. So what do we think that means? Do we, <laughs> do we speculate responsibly here or do we just go off the rails? Uh, now you're talking the Sith talk guys need to get Lindsay and <laughs> Zach on this one. Well, I don't know. They like to prognosticate wildly. I'm wondering because he specifically says blue Kyber, which is interesting because I don't think anywhere in canon we've had Kyber crystals identified as a certain color. We've had Kyber crystals that get bled, but from what we've seen, you just put the Kyber crystal in your lightsaber and it comes out a color. We don't have this differentiation so i'm wondering what that could possibly mean and when i looked at it it's you know you've got this blue part and you've got this white part it's like two good things melding together so i wonder you know for thinking of the idea of everything being symbolically important um when it comes to these artifacts is that representing you know luthan and andor coming together or um Mothma and Luthen coming together or you know like I don't know if I if I'm speculating irresponsibly as I do that's the direction that I would go would be like it <laughs> represents something about the relationships of one or more of these parties that we're getting I, th- I think it's much more simple I think that it is tied directly to his motivation I think that the I think that piece that object item means a lot to him for a specific reason and i think it's directly tied to what motivates and drives him now i don't know how that is and i'm it could be almost anything at this point but i think that it's very was introduced specifically and intentionally as something that is not just a plot device or something that could could help move the story along but it also helps it, something is being uh, introduced as something that motivates him because it means something a lot to him. So let's go ahead and, um, you know, we, we've talked about all these connections, but something that we get to see for the first time is the ISB. We've gotten ISB agents before, but we get to see the ISB for the first time in live action. Did anybody else like just get stupid giddy about this like I did? Oh, 100%. Like I li- yeah. I I started clapping. I was like, "Yee! This is so exciting." <laughs> <laughs> clapping for the wrong team, but that's okay. I yes, These are but, not good people. <laughs> well, it was the introduction with the, you know, walking up towards the building was so cool to me oh, because it's so good. It's beautifully crafted, but it reminds me of a mix of the Sith Temple um, in Twilight of the Apprentice on in Rebels mixed with the seeing stone that we get from Mandalorian. Like it's got that holocron hmm. or type pyramidal structure, but it's not connected 
together, you know, kind of like the seeing stone is in, in Mando. And I just thought that that was really cool to be like, this is something that has history and power behind it, but it's different. It's not the same power that you think that it would be. And then we go inside and you just get, I mean, amazing, amazing character work from these actors Mm -hmm. of like, I instantly, those scenes are done. I'm like, I want an ISB show. Like, I I just want to sit there and watch them talk at these meetings and, like, go back and forth at each other. Like, Drew, you and I have talked about how, like, it would be cool to have a, a West Wing-type show mm-hmm. happening, you know, following the Senate. I think it'd be cool to have a West Wing-type show in the ISB. And we just... Do walk and talks in the ISB for an hour a week. Be great. I'd be okay with that. I think it was a very interesting and and very pleasant surprise to see how much time we actually get to spend with those characters and those people. And obviously, we'll be coming back to them because we don't know quite super well how it all ties together. Something about the piece Cassian had stolen was something that the one character was looking for, but it wasn't her jurisdiction until she could confirm what it was and then that got slapped down by the director it was like very a little bit confusing but you could always tell what people were trying to accomplish you you could tell who was winning you could tell who had the upper hand even if you didn't know exactly the situation or why it was working out the way it was you could tell who was winning and i really enjoyed that i would be fine with more of this too absolutely and I think it's really cool how the ISB and the rebel group kind of reflect each other. They're both these yeah. teams that have, they're working towards the same goal, but they don't necessarily trust each other. And there's a lot of friction going on and they have differing views on what's going to actually get them to that point. Yeah. I, for me, what makes it exciting to see it, CISB now in live action in this way is that it comes along with being able to revisit Coruscant, but revisiting it after the fall of the Republic and to see it yeah. like as, as the empire's Coruscant. Um, it's, it's a planet we're familiar with from the prequels. And yet I don't know about you guys, but man, the city felt so ominous, like just the, the towering concrete of it felt so overwhelming in every scene. It overwhelmed the characters. And it just mm-hmm, feels like mm-hmm. such a ominous place now. And you, you kind of feel the emperor hanging over all the buildings and, and, and just the way that people go oh, wow, about their daily yeah. lives. Um, to sort of, and to visit this, you know, this, this building where these, all of these true believers have gathered to, to, to talk about order and how we keep order. And it, and that the director, that speech, the director gives where he's like, tell us what it is we do here. And then, and then, you know, and of course, you know, Mira has this great <laughs> yeah. canned response that comes right out of the, you know, the, the employee handbook and he shoots it down and no, no, we're, we work in healthcare. Yeah, we are healthcare providers. We we recognize pathogens. It's it was so nefariously evil, but just so articulate and so well defined. Like you, like like let's get a group of Nazis together. And then what do Nazis talk about when they're in a room together? <laughs> <laughs> they talk this way. This is 
it's it's to go so far beyond the cartoon mustache twirling evil of of the original trilogy this is this is really dark stuff like this is this is this is why this show i'm i cannot wait to sink my teeth into this show because it is it is showing this fascist you know movement taking over society and it's chilling um, I, uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, we, once we get past ISB, we have to talk about Mon Mothma and that scene and what she's doing and like that whole thing. I, I, yeah, I'm very, very much want to see more of the backstabbing, more of the ladder climbing and, and, and all of that because on both sides, because it's, it goes mm-hmm. back to that thing of there's, there's, you know, heroes on both sides and there's villains on both sides. So this is that <laughs> complex that complexity that we've been promised that we're finally getting to see. Well, and I think, you know, going back to what you were saying about, uh, you know, coming into Corazon and it feels different. Most of the time in the prequels, when we go in on Coruscant, we're going over the top, you know, and, and we're Mm. going down towards it where we kind of feel, okay, I can see the scope of this city and it's big, but I'm almost, it's almost like it's little, you know, like when you're in an airplane and, and that little houses look like things you could just pick up and move around. But when we and get it's beautiful, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful in the prequels. Exactly. But when we start here, we start from a downward angle. We are looking up. So we yeah. are overwhelmed by this, you know, and it's, it's yep. very much how in, in uh, Twilight of the Apprentice and Rebels, how we fall into the dark pit and look up towards the Sith Temple where most of the time in the prequels and even in Clone Wars, we come in over the top of the, the Jedi Temple. It, it gives us a sense of control coming in over the top of it and understanding and peace. But when we're coming in from the bottom, we're overwhelmed by this piles and piles of steel and skyscrapers and everything that would be over our heads because Coruscant is such a grand big city and you know we get bits and pieces of that when we go into the lower levels of Coruscant but nothing on the surface on with the government with the legit side of things and so yeah it is very very chilling that's a very good point, and and when you des- when you describe it that way, it makes me think of of how Karn appears in this episode. He's in like two scenes where he's basically getting the dressing down, where he's told, you know, you're fired, and then he is banished to go home to Coruscant. Like his punishment his is mom. now you have to go home and live with your mom. <laughs> yeah. And, he, he it just all those he has those scenes where he just is walking through the city and he he kind of just gets swallowed up by it and he and it ends with him like being greeted at, at the door with a slap and a hug from his mom and then that's <laughs> it it's like it's a really good way to to show how you know this character kind of is getting lost in this you know, this concrete jungle of Coruscant and, and what is his life going to be like now in this place, this horrible place. Yeah. Well, let's go to, to Mon Mothma to wrap it up here um, because you mentioned the scene with her and I, I'm assuming you're alluding to the scene when she walks into the, the dinner party being prepared. Yes. So tell us your thoughts on that, Mark. Um, 
Well, you know, it comes on the heels of that interaction in the in the shop where both Luthen and Mamothma are wearing facades, and they go step in the back, and the and the facades fall, and it's deadly serious. You know, they are both risking their lives, and you see how like they have crafted these personas and that everything is so carefully prepared and we go from that scene where she can't trust who she's around she has a new driver and she has to be careful what she says around him and we go home follow her home and we see her home is this is an extension of that it's this carefully crafted environment it's opulent it's beautiful and yet she can't even relax there either because this person that she's married to, who should be her number one advocate, is somebody that has, has lost so, she's lost so much touch, she's, she's no longer in touch with him and has lost all connection to him, that she is sort of at the mercy of his whims. Um, and I'm really interested to see what, how their relationship is defined in the show, because um, he does not seem to understand the gravity of what she's going through, or she hasn't felt she could trust him enough to share it. So either way, he's going to be a very interesting character moving forward. Um, and I cannot wait to see that dinner scene. I mean, did we see, did y'all see, notice who was on the, the invite list? Slymore. Never. Yeah. Did. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting dinner conversation. I wonder if, I wonder how much of what she's doing he knows about. Like, I don't think he knows that she's, you know, forming the rebellion. I, he obviously knows the front-facing stuff that she's doing, but I wonder if he has inklings of this and he's trying to, to sabotage her. Because, you know, this is happening in the same episode that we're getting, uh, you know, the rebel group who is feeling, you know, betrayed and it's kind of fracturing because of Cassian being brought in and we have the ISB, which is a whole bunch of backstabbing. So the whole kind of theme of this episode is who are you really? And, and the bonds mm. and everything like that. And so mm. I'll be interested to see what role he plays in that because I'm, I'm thinking of Leia princess of Alderaan and we get a dinner scene there yep. where, yep. Yep. Tarkin uh, comes in because he knows that like this is a secret rebel meeting and so it'll be interesting to see a parallel of him you know saying things to these people that could be of great threat to to Mon Mothma and then you have all these Imperials and she's the one alone this time rather than Tarkin being the one alone and I just I love the idea of you know, this this little dinner party where it's all these rich people who can't really say what they want to say or need to say. Uh, and they're really just looking at each other going, I know what you're doing, but they also can't just say to the other person, I know what you're doing. It's just, a, it, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm very much <laughs> looking forward to it. I don't think that Perrin is necessarily somebody that she doesn't, like she thinks is working against him deliberately. I got the sense more from that scene that she's more exasperated with him, that she can't rely on him anymore. 
Um, or perhaps she just doesn't feel like she can share really what's going on because he, maybe she just knows that he's not somebody who cares. You know, there's that, that line where she's talking about, well, maybe we shouldn't, I forget who she says it is, but they've just had their shipping lanes closed down and people are going to starve and we can discuss it over the third course. She's like lecturing him on his decadence. Like he's like, she, she no longer, she may have loved him at one point, but now she's, she's obviously not connected to him anymore and he doesn't understand what she's going through and she doesn't feel like she can share it with him. Um, he's more of like an inconvenience to her, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if he'll play a bigger role. Like, will he eventually, because they're just, dis- they're disconnected so wide, will he betray her or will he, you know, start to come back closer to her or, Maybe he just stays where he is, and it's more just a statement on how distant Mon Mothma has become from everybody else in in the Empire, who is, you know, like you said, caught up in the decadence and stuff like that. So, Drew, where do you where do you land on this? Do you think that this is heading somewhere with this relationship, or is it just informing this critical character for us? I think it's more information. Um, and it does kind of help outline her distance from Senate colleagues and kind of puts her in a position. It, it, it kind of is an opportunity to tell the audience that she has these particular political spaces that she lives in and that there's, there's still regular work to be done too. There's like her weekend gig in the rebellion, the fledgling rebellion, but there's also her day job, which is still just as fraught with danger and, and alliances and and challenges and whatnot and he, he i imagine perrin as a character will stick around we'll see him whenever we see mon mothma on coruscant i can't imagine that's something that she changes because she needs to maintain that image that she's steady and stable and isn't hiding anything in order to avoid further scrutiny you know she's already getting very very paranoid um maybe rightfully so we don't really have enough information to know how much the ISB has on her, but there's certainly some information that it looks like they're zeroing in on her. And so to up and leave him and kind of shake up that home life would be something that gets the attention of the spies. And so that I I, I can't imagine she would jeopardize that. So I imagine it's just probably the 87th time they've had an uncomfortable conversation about he wants to do something with people like just friends just to kind of blow off steam. And she's like, this has real world implications. You dummy. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, I need you to think outside and past your nose for just for a minute. So there might be some commentary there about, you know, people who aren't willing to acknowledge the problems of others. And therefore those problems aren't real. You know, just because it doesn't affect them, it must not be a real issue. And she can't abide that. And that's good for her. You know, Tony Gilroy and Diego Luna and and all the people involved in the show said it was, you know, kind of a statement of what's going on in the world today. And, I mean, that is an issue we have is we're all Mm -hmm. so connected now, but we're also extremely disconnected from each other. And, And we, you know, like you said, Drew, a lot of times we don't think of you know things that others are going through as real if they're not affecting us we're in bubbles we like, yeah parents in his own bubble of 
you know, he care less about what what's happening in the in the galaxy. He just cares about what's happening at his parties, and who's fun and who isn't, and that sort of thing. Um, because we know that she's in such a precarious position, I think the the um, the easy thing to predict would be that somehow he's going to betray her or that he's working against her. I don't think we should rule out that she perhaps might use him in that's, some way. That's like interesting. It, oh, interesting. Like that might that may be the angle that's that's being set up here, is that she'll have to somehow use him or. S- sacrifice him in some way i don't mean like in terms of like killing him or anything i just mean in terms of he'll have to be perhaps she's using him and in a way and he kind of is using her it seems but maybe it's a two-way street here well uh we'll find out here we are a third of the way through season one of andor it's so extremely satisfying getting uh three episodes at a time until you realize oh my goodness that's a quarter of of the season but We've got a couple months left of uh, of Andor content coming out, and it seems like they're going to be delivering on every single one. So it'll be exciting to continue to discuss this and to hear from you guys about what you think about Andor. Uh, you can always go over to our Facebook group, Clashing Sabers Star Wars. You can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, and or TikTok at Clashing Savers or email us Clashing Savers Network at gmail.com. So uh, we are gearing up for our fundraiser. So there will be more information uh, coming on that here in the near future for our nonprofit branch. But if you know any uh, teachers who like Star Wars or don't like Star Wars but want books, uh, let us know. And we can get them some <laughs> some books, especially, you know, if, if anybody is in touch with any of the teachers in Florida who are being affected right now by uh, the hurricane. We'd love to to be able to send them a box and let them know that uh, they are not in a bubble and that we are thinking about. You can go over to ClashingSabers.net and nominate a teacher or join our Patreon. So. Mark, if people want to hear more of your thoughts on Andor and all things Star Wars, where can they find you? Yes, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DJM Marquis, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. And um, at the end of season one of Andor, I will be recording a episode of Forever Star Wars in which I'll have a special guest on. It'll be somebody that's a very good friend of mine. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to that very much. Awesome. Looking forward to that. And Drew, people obviously can hear your thoughts mm. right here on the flagship show, but where else can I they sure find so. you uh, riling people up? <laughs> uh, <laughs> riling people up is an accusation, <laughs> I think. Um, uh, Twitter's probably the safest place for that, at the Drew Brett. I also was on a an episode of Radio Rebellion not long ago where we did a sequel trivia challenge, a sequel trilogy trivia challenge, and that's available on YouTube. Um, if you look for Radio Rebellion, you can actually see what it looks like when I get things right and more often get things wrong. So that was quite an adventure. So shout out to those guys. Thanks for that invitation. Can't wait to do it again. I think if we get anything else in Andor to really like bring home it, tie it all together, we really should get batch eight. Hi ho. Hi ho. <laughs> Man, Not a Mark. question that was in the trivia challenge, and I was. I saw that coming. I saw it coming. You were ready. 
All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?